Hello everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a book podcast brought to you by this university fiction teacher, where I am making my way across Stephen King's underrated novels and short stories, Mining for Gold. How's everybody doing? Welcome, welcome to part two of our Skeleton Crew investigation. I'm so excited to be with you guys, and thank you very much if you've been tuning in to the coverage on this 1985 short story collection. We have been unraveling and making our way through the 22 total cumulative tales stitched together in this very meaty and robust short story collection. It is definitely uh, very heavy and loaded. Lots of good stuff, guys. So I am very happy to report that Kim C is coming to you today much more relaxed, much less cranky. I think I got a, a little feisty in last week's part one skeleton crew coverage. I am quite quite um, relaxed now. I am definitely (laughs) super excited and happy and smiling because, oh gosh, guys, the second half of Skeleton Crew just brought the diamonds, the sparkling gems, one right after the other. I was just astonished. And it makes so much sense why this collection is very important throughout the King catalog, as well as amongst constant readers. Like, there are some stories in here that are absolutely stellar and are most likely on people's top five, top ten, all-time favorites. So I've discovered a few more. Uh, A few of them might actually rival Mrs. Todd's shortcut for the best one. I don't know. Haven't decided yet but she may have been knocked to the silver spot, perhaps even the bronze. Not there yet. Um, But if you guys haven't heard part one yet, go ahead and jump back to the Skeleton Crew part one coverage. And if you want, you can jump back to The Mist, which is the very first novella that kicks off Skeleton Crew if you haven't heard it or need a refresher. So we're going to do another uh, brief synopsis for each of the stories to jog a few of our memories. If it's been a while since you've read Skeleton Crew as a collection or some of these tales individually. So let's jump in where we left off, which was at last week's story number 11, which was Beach World. We are kicking off today's coverage with story number 12, The Reaper's Image, originally published in 1968 and 1969, perhaps one of the two, but we'll just say 68 for now. Antique collector Johnson Spangler visits the Samuel Claggart Museum in search of the famous or rather infamous Delver Mirror, an object from the 1500s with a very notorious past. Museum director Mr. Carlin tries to dissuade Spangler from purchasing the object, which has caused several people to disappear. Story number 13 is Nona, originally published in 1978, the year of the stand, I believe. Our imprisoned and orphan narrator recounts the night he met a beautiful woman and broke into a ceaseless string of murder under the influence of this beguiling female named Nona. 
Story 14, For Owen. This lyrical poem is inspired by a walk to school with King's youngest son, Owen. Story number 15, Survivor Type, originally written in 1977 and published in 1982. Dr. Richard Pine is shipwrecked on an abandoned island somewhere off the coast of the Philippines. After attempting to smuggle much heroin back into the U.S., Dr. Pine believes he'll be rescued promptly and back to performing surgeries and being his slick alpha self in no time. With nothing but the heroin, medical bag, and logbook for company, Dr. Pine's survival journey unravels. Story number 16, Uncle Otto's Truck, originally published in 1983. In 1930s Castle Rock, George McCutcheon and Otto Shank are wealthy business partners carving up the land between the two of them until Otto murders George with his own red Ford. Decades later, Otto Shank, a recluse and madman, builds a small shack in the woods across from where the weathered old red Ford still rests. Otto is convinced the truck is moving closer to him and the house a little closer each day. Story number 17, The Milkman, Morning Deliveries, number one, previously unpublished. Spike Milligan is the neighborhood milkman who takes great pleasure in leaving extra special surprises in the customer milk bottles. Story number 18, Big Wheels, A Tale of the Laundry Game, Milkman number two, originally published in 1980. Rocky and Leo are drinking the night away after a long day on shift at the laundromat, and while behind the wheel, they encounter a very unhappy man named Bill. All three of these gentlemen seem to have a connection with a frightening milkman named Spike. Story number 19, Grandma, originally published in 1984. 11-year-old George Bruckner must watch after his sleeping grandmother after his mother is called away. George has always been afraid of his grandmother, and now that he is alone with her, he soon learns he was correct in always fearing her. Story number 20, The Ballad of the Flexible Bullet, published in 1984. Henry, a fiction editor, recalls the tale of writer Richard Thorpe, whose last story both inspired and caused a downward spiral of shared madness. And lastly, story 21, The Reach, also known as Do the Dead Sing, originally published in 1981. Stella Flanders has lived on goat her entire long life and has never once crossed the reach to get to the mainland. In the last months of her life, Stella begins to see ghosts beckoning her to cross the reach. All right, so uh, some of these we're going to put into the spotlight and some of these we're going to push out of the spotlight, um, but I was brought, this was brought to my attention by a listener in regards to the short story collections, and I feel so terribly, I didn't mention this earlier, dear folks, please forgive me, clearly my mind was elsewhere, but when we have a short story collection episode, I do not cover all the stories, so I'm never gonna talk about all of them, uh, I, I, So my reasoning for that is, um, I'm really only 
creating episodic content for the stories that cause a reaction, a positive one or a negative one, but it's got to be substantial. So the ones that have me absolutely swooning, the ones that make me want to put a post-it note, which is the mark of a gold medal in Kim C's reading repertoire. Um, If the story gets a post-it, if as soon as I'm done reading it, I want to automatically start it again. If I'm thinking about it days later, that's going to go into the winner's circle and that's going to make it into the episode. Uh, the content that I want to talk to you guys about. Um, If it's definitely causing a negative reaction where I just see a lot of problems, I found myself not enjoying the reading ride. I wanted to stop reading it. I was bored. All of those things. Those, the, I got to talk about that as well. So if there's ever a story in a collection that I don't mention in either the positive or negative frame, you can safely assume that it, I think it's fine. <laughs> I think it's it's going into the fine folder and it's not a passive aggressive fine. It's just like, this is fine. This was uh it it accomplished its job which was to entertain me i i liked it there were parts i enjoyed um but it i'm pretty neutral about it meaning there wasn't anything that stood out or shined particularly bright but there also wasn't a big glaring gaping black hole for me to fall into or or any part of the story that kind of caused a gut punch of of some kind so what we might do later on down the road in the podcast is take a look at the fine folder and these are all the stories that don't get episode coverage or rather they don't get mentioned at all we we might have to file through those and reread them and see if we miss something and i'm very open to doing that because i know We've taken a look at just after sunset and everything's eventual, and I've kind of attempted to uh, loop everything in together when I talk about what the collection as a whole is trying to accomplish or things that I noticed or themes that have sprung up. So I definitely try to do that. But if there's never a particular story that gets mentioned in addition to all the others, it is safe to assume I think it's fine. So the fine stories are neutral territory and they are filed in the fine folder. So um, later on, we'll explore those in greater detail. It's very possible. We always could have missed something, but it's also possible that these are just sort of neutral king ground. They are compositions that have something good about them, but maybe something that doesn't make them quite memorable, or clearly there was something that I might not have hated or disliked to such a degree, it just fell into the neutral zone. So uh, going forward with upcoming short story collections, just know I can't and most likely won't talk about all of them individually. Only the ones that I want to put in the winner's circle or the loser's bench or honorable mentions. Everything else that isn't in those three categories is in the fine folder. So I hope that helps a little bit as we make our way through more King short story collections. I do not do this, however, with the novella collections. The novella collections, every single one will be discussed because they are important and I love them so. So if you jump back to previous novella collections, I have 
uh, content for each and every single one. For example, uh, Full Dark No Stars, loved the hell out of that one. Um, 2020's If It Bleeds, I have um, an episode chunk for each of those novellas. So the novellas you can always count on, all of them being mentioned and explored and put under the microscope because they are uh, very important and uh, longer narratives that need some digestion and dissection. Uh, so yeah, I, I behave a little differently with the novellas. However, with short stories, there's a few that will not be mentioned. So um, many thanks to listener Melissa for alerting me to that. I definitely should have included that uh, in my in my openings uh, as I'm making my way creating this content. That was a very important tip to include and it has eluded me for quite some time. So thank you, dear listener. Um, so yeah, going forward, keep that in mind, folks. Um, if ever there is a short story who I do not put in either the winner's circle, loser's bench, or honorable mention, and you feel I should take a second look, by all means, please head over to your computer or your phone and type out an email to underratedsk, or you can reach me on any of the socials and uh, send me a direct message and let me know if there's something I missed, or rather something I should give a second read because there is something quite special there that I definitely missed, or you're a huge fan of it and want a second opinion want a second pair of eyes on it, I will happily do that for you. I'm, I love revisiting King Works uh, all day, every day, any time of the day. So please reach out if, if that is something you noticed in either just after sunset, everything's eventual. Um, I think this is the third one we've done. However, it's a little bit of a blur <laughs> if, if I'm missing one. But upcoming, we're definitely going to do Four Past Midnight. I'm going to do every single novella in that one. And then, of course, later on down the road, we are going to do Nightmares and Dreamscapes. We're going to take our time with that one. And then we're going to save Night Shift for the very end because everybody loves Night Shift. And I know I'm going to love Night Shift, but we're focusing on the underrated works at present, dear folks. So, so yeah, that's my little preamble. I definitely should have included that much earlier in the podcast. Forgive me that I did not. So going forward with this episode, our next section, we're going to explore the winner's circle, of which I have quite a few because Kimsey was blown away by the second half of Skeleton Crew. Oh my goodness, guys. Oh my god, I can't wait to talk to you guys about these three stories I have. Um, we also have three honorable mentions, and then we'll head into our loser's bench, which I know loser's a little bit of a strong word, but it'll work. And we're going to talk about one or two tales that just missed the mark quite a bit and uh, had some problems. And then lastly, we will take a look and wrap up our skeleton crew coverage by kind of observing what we noticed in the collection as a whole and uh, what was really working well, what was not working so well, and what definitely needed a strong editor's hand. And then we will conclude our skeleton crew coverage as well as give a hint on which ones were my absolute favorite, who gets the gold, silver, and bronze in this collection, as well as the next king title we will be reading in the next week or so. So 
that is what's coming up per usual i cannot begin before warning everybody please make sure i don't spoil anything for you so let's read these stories or listen to the audiobook versions or have in memory how these stories begin and end because i will be discussing certain plot points i don't want to ruin anything um i do my best to dance around always always but you never know sometimes i get carried away and full-on let you know how the ending goes down and somebody might not have finished it and then i'm the bad guy i don't want to be the bad guy so just a heads up make sure you're pretty fresh with these tales or have at least a good sort of synopsis in your mind to jog your memory if you have read these tales before but i highly recommend uh going back after you listen to the winner's circle and definitely giving those ones a second read because they're stunning they're so beautiful i am freaking out all right guys thank you so much for hanging out with me let's head into our next section the winner's circle Alright everybody, welcome to the winner's circle in the second half of our Skeleton Crew coverage. I have three gold medal winners I'd like to share with you today. Three. I'm so excited. I Last week we talked about Mrs. Todd's shortcut definitely winning me over heart and soul and perhaps being my very favorite of the collection. However, I, I think we might either have a tie for first or... I don't know, uh, Mrs. Todd Shortcut might have been knocked down to the silver or the bronze, not sure yet. We'll, we'll cross that bridge a little bit later. But the first of my three tales I would like to chat with you guys about is Nona, N-O-N-A. I thought it was the Italian word for grandma, which I am correct. However, there's a double N, I think, in the Italian word for grandma. So in this context, Nona is a girl's name. And oh, guys, I love this story so much. Uh, so some of the reasons why, of course. Uh, firstly, I shall mention this is a castle rock story and what that means is constant readers know that castle rock is the fictional main town that is a, a recurring place in lots of stories it's prominent in the dead zone i think it's also prominent in cujo and lots of places uh, or rather lots of stories make mention of Castle Rock and there are some recurring names associated with the town. So we have that here actually. So inside Nona, there is mention of Ace Merrill, who I haven't read the stories he is directly affiliated with, except for The Body. 
which that is under the fall from innocence season inside the different seasons novella collection of 1982 it inspired the movie stand by me of course and uh ace merrill i believe is in that he's a bully i think he's the one who Kiefer sutherland plays which i'm pretty sure because i love <laughs> i love 80s Kiefer sutherland he melts my butter uh crush wise but uh, we have mention of Ace Merrill, who I also believe is very prominent in the Sun Dog, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's in Four Past Midnight. It might be in another collection that I just haven't reached yet on my King Journey. Um, there is also mention of Vern Tessio, and Vern Tessio is one of the four friends within Stand By Me slash The Body. So this is definitely a Castle Rock story, and so for that kind of nostalgia, it's pretty great. But what I absolutely love about Nona, guys, is our narrator is reporting to us from prison, it is unknown how long he's been there, but based on how the story ends, I don't know if it's been significantly, um, if it's been a significant amount of time. I don't think so. Um, however, it's unknown. So in this story, there is a lot of violence, specifically cold-blooded murder. Um, but what's very interesting about it is because this narration is soaked in melancholy, it's just absolutely tinged in memory um the violence aspect is dealt with such a delicate hand it's very very slight and this is amazing for me one i don't do well with super graphic violence and gore i'll endure it of course because i love king so much um but it's always very interesting where there seems to be a little bit of a pulling back in terms of graphic detail and we see that here we have multiple murders in this story guys and it's uh pretty uh one right after the other it's definitely a little bit like natural born killers which a listener reminded me of that film uh and so it's not quite as graphically violent or deplorable there's a very delicate touch to it which is quite fascinating because when you really when you get to the end of the story and you start mulling over the details there's a little bit of melancholy magic there so i love the fact that we do in fact have a lot of graphic murder but it's all in a soft focus it's all in a very delicate touch um almost as if king is pulling away wanting you to focus on something else quite fascinating so we're going to talk about that here in a little bit i think there might be some mentioned in my sample i'm going to read you in just a second the other thing I want to mention is just a personal observation of mine, and that is the symbol of the rat. So inside this story, we got rat stuff everywhere. Uh, rat is king in this story, and I don't know why, guys. This is just a personal hypothesis of mine. But every time I encounter a Stephen King short story and a rat is involved, 
I don't know why, but it ends up being like the best story ever. <laughs> it just absolutely is amazing. It's a kick-ass ride from start to finish. And off the top of my head, um, one of my favorite novellas of all time, and of course the one that started it all for me, is 1922, Inside of Full Dark No Stars. That was the very first King experience of my entire life. That was the one. And there's a lot of rats in that, and it's the best thing ever. And here we've got more rats, and it's glorious. So I'm I'm convinced that if rats are involved, it's going to be wonderful. So that's just a, a personal hunch of mine. Uh, if you have any additional recommendations of King stories I haven't yet covered yet, and there's rats, please let me know uh, so I can skip ahead and give them a gander and see if this hypothesis is true. <laughs> like, we need to do some data collection in this scientific method of mine and like observe is the rat theory is that <laughs> does that hold water so i absolutely love that we've got some rat stuff in here that is uh absolutely compelling so i'm going to without further ado read a chunk from nona this is about two pages uh i just could not condense it anymore because it's so beautiful and it's so rich so i'm going to read a small sample this is from the american hardcover starting on page 341 from nona Whenever I had been building up all those years since the fire wiped out the B-movie actors who had once been my family, that broke it down, that guy's pin on her blouse. After that, I was on again, off again with three or four girls who were willing to sleep with me. I could blame it on my childhood, say I never had good sexual models, but that wasn't it. I never had any trouble with the girl, only now that the girl was gone. I started being afraid of girls a little, and it wasn't so much the ones I was impotent with as the ones I wasn't, the ones I could make it with. They made me uneasy. I kept asking myself, where, where were they hiding? Whatever axes they liked to grind, and when they were going to let me have it. I'm not so strange at that. You show me a married man, or a man with a steady woman, and I'll show you someone who is asking himself, maybe only in the early hours of the morning or on Friday afternoon when she's off buying groceries, what is she doing when I'm not around? What does she think of me? And maybe, most of all, how much of me has she got? How much is left? Once I started thinking about those things, I thought about them all the time. I started to drink and my grades took a nosedive. During semester break, I got a letter saying that if they didn't improve in six weeks, my second semester scholarship check would be withheld. I and some guys I hung around with got drunk and stayed drunk for the whole holiday. On the last day, we went to a whorehouse and I operated just fine. It was too dark to see faces. My grades stayed about the same. I called the girl once and cried over the telephone. She cried too, and in a way, I think that pleased her. I didn't hate her then, and I don't now. But she scared me. She scared me plenty. On February 9, I got a letter from the Dean of Arts and Sciences saying I was flunking two or three courses in my major field. On February 13th, I got a hesitant sort of letter from the girl. She wanted everything to be alright between us. She was planning to marry the guy from Delta Tau Delta in July or August, and I could be invited if I wanted to be. That was almost funny. What could I give her for a wedding gift? My heart with a red ribbon tied around it? My head? My cock? On the 14th, 
Valentine's Day, I decided it was time for a change of scene. Nona came next, but you know about that. You have to understand how she was to me, if this is to do any good at all. She was more beautiful than the girl, but that wasn't it. Good looks are cheap in a wealthy country. It was the her inside. She was sexy, but the sexiness that came from her was somehow plant-like. Blind sex. A kind of clinging, not-to-be-denied sex that is not so important because it is as instinctual as photosynthesis. Not like animal, but like a plant. You get that wave? I know we would make love, but we would make it as men and women do, but that our joining would be as blunt and remote and meaningless as ivy clinging its way up a trellis in the August sun. The sex was important only because it was unimportant. I think, no I'm sure, that violence was the real motive force. The violence was real and not just a dream. It was as big and as fast and as hard as Ace Merrill's 52 Ford. The violence of Joe's Good Eats. The violence of Norman Blanchett. And there was even something blind and vegetative about that. Maybe she was only a clinging vine after all, because the Venus flytrap is a species of vine, but that plant is carnivorous and will make animal motion when a fly or a bit of raw meat is placed in its jaws. And it was all real. The sporulating vine may only dream that it fornicates, but I am sure the Venus flytrap tastes that fly, relishes its diminishing struggle as its jaws close around it. The last part was my own passivity. I could not fill up the hole in my life. Not the hole left by the girl when she said goodbye. I don't want to lay this at her door. But the hole that had always been there. The dark, confused, swirling that never stopped down in the middle of me. Nona filled that hole. She made me move and act. She made me noble. Now, you under- now maybe you understand a little bit of it. Why I dream of her why the fascination remains in spite of the remorse and the revulsion, why I hate her, why I fear her, and why even now I still love her. Fan-freaking-tastic! That was one of my favorite passages. Swoon, guys. So rich, so rich, so rich, so decadent, so layered, and I'm loving this direct address to the reader. This just absolutely grabs you on both sides of your head and just makes you pay attention, makes you listen, attempts to make you understand. And there's some true power in that. I absolutely loved it. Um, This one really struck me. Very, very special. So that was Nona. So one of the recurring phrases that Nona repeats. It's strange, and I mention it now because coincidentally, or rather intentionally, this is so cool, um, it connects to our next story, our next gold medal winner, and that's The Reach. So, oh my goodness, the phrase that Nona asks, or really it's a question rather than a phrase, there's a repeating question that this beautiful black-haired woman named Nona asks our narrator is, do you love? Do you love? And I, I want to say she says, she asks this about five times throughout the story, and I didn't get it at all. Um, I just kind of 
let it reside there. Um, so what's fascinating is we have this question asked again in the reach. So I'm going to transition to the reach right now, but I want you to think about that question. Do you love? And maybe what we can do a little bit later on is if you guys read Nona and if you guys read the reach, I think these questions aren't connected. I think these stories aren't really connected, but, but there's, they mean very different things to, to these protagonists. So, however, I guess my question is, do they? Like, uh, is it the same question? So I'm kind of going down a philosophical spiral with this, but, uh, the reach guys. Oh my God. I am, I'm drooling over this story. Guys, this is stunning in all caps. This is Oh, I'm running out of words. You know when Kim C goes speechless, like when I just, the runway is bare of, of things to say because I'm so flabbergasted, we, we have reached a new level of great and the reach. Oh my God, guys. Okay, so let's, let's baby step it on in here. So what was really cool in kind of reading about this story is that Joyce Carol Oates, who's quite a powerhouse author, uh, kind of, I think she was introducing King at an event in the late 90s, I want to say 97. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, who is like literary fiction maven, uh, kind of praised King's elegant composition and his beautiful sort of presentation of New England or island life. And what we have here, guys, is just not only is it a stunningly written story, the word choice, the way he arranged it, it's sing-song, it's lyrical, it's meaningful, and it did bring me to tears at the end. It wasn't tears of sadness, it was just tears of I don't know, like, I think it was happy tears. I really do. I, I wasn't moved to by sadness, even though the subject is, is definitely somber. I was just so enthralled by the subjects King was playing with and how he presented it. And the main theme of sort of when we, as humans maybe it's our time to leave this world, especially if you are privileged to live a long life. If maybe there's a lot of loved ones who are there to greet you uh, as you cross over. And that's a very touching, um, very sort of loaded and quite precious idea that he explores quite a bit in this story. And I guess King was actually inspired to write The Reach from a true life tale on his wife Tabitha's side. Um, they were connected to some sort of fishing village story where there was a woman who lived her entire life on one of the islands and never, ever, ever went to the mainland, had no desire to go to the mainland until she was either dead or going to die in like the, sort of her last um, trip in her earthly body. So it's a really sort of interesting inspiration, but oh my gosh, guys, this story. So in the story, as I mentioned, we have that same question, do you love? So Nona asks the question, do you love? 
and it's also here in the reach. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more at the end, but I'm wondering if it's a coincidence that these stories are just kind of written in the same few years, or if there's an interconnectedness here, which I hope there is, but uh, who knows? We don't have a lot of evidence, just a little bit, just this repeating question, but it's a huge question. It's so layered. So uh, another thing I want to celebrate about The Reach is if you guys jump back to my episode on Storm of the Century. Uh, So I'm obsessed with Storm of the Century, guys. And for those of you who don't know, it is a 1999 three-part miniseries that aired on ABC here in the States. Um, way back when I was around 13 years old and it I recently watched it several times and nerded out for over two hours on the show about Storm of the Century. It is the greatest TV adaptation I think King has done. Personally, I believe it's the best ever in the history of ever. Um, The story of Storm of the Century takes place on Little Tall Island, which is also featured in Dolores Claiborne, but here we have Goat Island, just G-O-A-T, not exactly the goat that the 21st century knows and has as greatest of all time, but uh, no, the actual animal, Goat Island, uh, any relation or how far it is from Little Tall, I don't know, although I would have loved that, Um, but this is so soaked and saturated in what King does extraordinarily well, which is New England island life and kind of creating that, the, gosh guys, how do I even, this, this amazing overall ensemble cast who everyone is lived in and real and connected to the land and connected to the region in an extraordinary way where it's just like uh he he absolutely encapsulates and captures new england island life and it's it's beyond he's able to weave in the historical colloquial language character and just kind of the simple the simplicity and beauty of blue collar life and island life is especially curious because these people live in such cold weather they have such uh challenging um uh global events that kind of or rather weather events that kind of keep them very resilient but i think what king does so well is explore secrets secrets of island life and that's why storm of the century is the greatest thing ever it is the greatest king miniseries um i will debate anyone on this uh granted i'm sure there are honorable mentions out there but i i truly feel there's there's nothing but storm of the century he wrote it he oh my god i i this is not about storm of the century so i need to get back on track but the reach if you like storm of the century or if you are interested in this in this area of king's writing that is so powerful and so just beautiful elegant wonderful 
um, check out The Reach, and more importantly, check out Storm of the Century, and then listen to my really long coverage where I nerd out on every single night of the show because I'm obsessed and love it so much. All right, so I'm going to read you a little bit from The Reach just to kind of break down why it is so special and why, oh my gosh, we should all be reading it. Let's see if my placeholder held up once more. I am in the American hardcover. This is toward the back on page 492. Definitely listen to his arrangement and his word choice. But Graham, Lona would press. She never gave up, not that one. She was like her mom and her grandmother before her. You still haven't told me why you never went across. Why, child, I have always had everything I wanted right here on GOAT. But it's so small. We live in Portland. There's buses, Graham. I've seen enough of what goes on in cities on the TV. I guess I'll stay where I am. Hal was younger, but somehow more intuitive. He would not press her as his sister might, but his question would go closer to the heart of things. You never wanted to go across, Graham? Never? And she would lean toward him and take his small hands and tell him how her mother and father had come to the island shortly after they were married, and how Bull Symes' grandfather had taken Stella's father as an apprentice on his boat. She would tell him how her mother had conceived four times, but one of the babies had miscarried and another had died a week after birth. She would have left the island if they were, if they could have could have saved it at the mainland hospital, but of course it was over before that was even thought of. She would tell them that Bill had delivered Jane, their grandmother, but not that what, but not that when it was over, he had gone into the bathroom and first puked and then wept like a hysterical woman who had had her monthlies particularly bad. Jane, of course, had left the island at 14 to go to high school. Girls didn't get married at 14 anymore. And when Stella saw her go off in the boat with Bradley Maxwell, whose job it had been to ferry the kids back and forth that month, she knew in her heart that Jane was gone for good, although she would come back for a while. She would tell them that Alden had come along 10 years later after they had given up, and as if to make up for his tardiness, here was Alden still, a lifelong bachelor, and in some ways Stella was grateful for for that, because Alden was not terribly bright, and there are plenty of women willing to take advantage of a man with a slow brain and a good heart, although she would not tell the children that last either. She would say, Lewis and Margaret Godlin begat Stella Godlin, who became Stella Flanders, Bill and Stella Flanders begat Jane and Alden Flanders, and Jane Flanders became Jane Wakefield, Richard and Jane Wakefield begat Lois Wakefield, who became Lois Perot, David and Lois Perot begat Loni, Lona and Hal, those are your names, children. You are Godlin, Flanders, Wakefield, Perot. Your blood is in the stones of this island, and I stay here because the mainland is too far to reach. Yes, I love, I have loved anyway, or at least tried to love, but memory is so wide and so deep and I cannot cross. Godlin, Flanders, Wakefield, Perot. Are you guys dead on the floor like me? Because I'm dead. I am in a heap. <laughs> I am in a humid puddle of uh, marveling at the beauty. And that was just one tiny page of, of the magic that he weaves, this 
gold and that's what the reach is folks it's just gold um stella flanders is a beautiful narrator this old woman who observes that she's reaching the end of her life she starts to see the ghost of her husband and for the very first time since the year 1938 the reach is completely frozen and this is her moment and she's being called by those she has loved and those that have loved her and oh man this was so moving guys please read the reach wow just wow that's all i can say i am smitten i am obsessed and i think it might take first place haven't decided yet because mrs touch shortcut is also exceptional so i i'm so thrilled guys skeleton crew really really brought out um the roses in this second half i was a little concerned in skeleton crew part one not gonna lie uh, but now the part two has completely made the journey absolutely worth it and wonderful so uh thus far we have covered nona and the reach and our last our third gold medal is uncle otto's truck all right guys i for you film folks out there if you have seen martin scorsese's the aviator i forget what year that came out or 2007's paul thomas anderson film there will be blood that one kind of got infamous for um a certain actor's portrayal we have the of course uh iconic Daniel Day-Lewis in that one but Uncle Otto's truck really reminded me of those two films but we have yet again in this collection another kind of historical fiction King is playing with we are in the um oh gosh we we kind of make a great jaunt from the late 1880s of German immigrants um setting up in Maine and then we've we've got the early 1930s with the characters of um, George McCutcheon and Otto Shank, who are friends and business partners at first, but then something goes awry, and Otto Shank, completely consumed by greed, which is the theme of this story, is greed, um, decides that he, rather than, you know, do the ethical uh, separation of a business partnership, decides to just kill his partner with a truck. Um, and I think the, the ending of this, it, it took me a minute when I was, after I had done, after I was finished reading it, I kind of thought to myself, uh, you know, it's really strong, but the ending might bleed over a little into the kitschy, a little into the hokey. But then I was like, no, no, it actually works beautifully. I think that in the imagination of the reader, I think it's still rich throughout. Um, so we have a period piece. We've got... The history of two families and uh we have the character of otto shank who kind of falls into the same pit that howard hughes does which is you know a tremendously wealthy person who loses their mind and goes absolutely um uh, off their rocker lost the plot as they say and just is uh spending their final days in a paranoia filled nightmare um where everything is just everyone's out to get them um everyone is it's nothing but uh, a frightening survivalist 
terror and just anxiety-ridden final days. And then, of course, Howard Hughes was quite ghoulish in the end, like growing out his fingernails incredibly long, his hair, like he, he, he really became quite monstrous at the end if you uh, research in history books. And I think Otto Schenk um, mirrors that quite a bit where the price of his crime, the penalty of his sin weighed very, very heavily and unraveled his mind year after year after year. And it's so cool, guys. It's so cool. And there's a really great climax to the end of this. But I I love that I was thinking about There Will Be Blood. I was thinking about The Aviator. I was just in that historical mind frame, imagining Maine as just wild, untouched forest and these two business partners just carving it up and bringing industry to the town. It's so compelling. It's so good guys i really liked uncle otto's truck so it is there are some spooky parts but the theme is greed and sort of the downfall of these two men it's very cain and abel um so if you want some biblical illusion in there you got it you got it in spades so good so strong and i really love the spooky final imagery in the final notes of what happens to otto shank and um it's yeah it's it's gothic enough to get me to scoop me up and i struggled with it i was like is this a gold medal is this a top three and and i was is this in the winner's circle and the answer is yes oh yeah it definitely is so i i think we could definitely get a very awesome film adaptation out of this if anybody has a good recommendation for a dollar baby that really did it right this is cool this is very cool and you'll be thinking about it especially some of the images at the end of the story so uncle otto's truck 10 out of 10 all right uh honorable mentions guys we have three of them uh i again i'm so happy that this second half of skeleton crew was so much stronger so my honorable mentions i have once more three stories the first of course is the reaper's image this is a very short tale i think it's less than five pages I loved this, guys. This is gothic. This is mysterious. It's short. Loved it. Um, I think this is very, very early King from my notes. It sounds like he uh, wrote this in 1968 times. So I believe he is still at university during that time. So this is around the time he composed uh, The Long Walk and some really other, uh, other early King tales that might have been Bachman tales down the road, but the Reaper's image, very cool, very uh, elegant in its sort of pacing and unfolding. I really like that. Um, the next one we have in the honorable mention, and I, I ruminated on this one a little bit, but I really liked it, guys, even though it's slightly over the top. It's very over the top. Who am I kidding? And that is survivor type. So her survivor type is, of course, quite infamous for, uh, King has kind of mentioned it on various talk shows. He wrote, wrote a story about a guy who's starving to death and he starts to amputate parts of himself and eat himself, you know, and everybody chuckles and it's like, yeah, it is sort of chuckle worthy just because it's so, it's ridiculous. The premise is, is a little bit out there, but, um, so it works I'll tell you where it works and I'll tell you where it doesn't work, obviously. But despite the fact that we have a few parts in this story that are 
hard to suspend your disbelief. I love the premise. Uh, with Dr. Richard Price, he is the definition of arrogant. He is the definition of a guy who um, didn't start off with a lot of of wealth or success, but sort of through grit and scheming, forged a very ritzy life for himself. And he's a con man. He's an absolute con man with gambling, but he's just one of those arrogant guys that is, you just, ugh, smarmy, slimy, um, but they have you know, the smarts to back it up, which is even worse. There's nothing worse than like being arrogant and, you know, powerful. That's, that's the kiss of death for sure. But Dr. Richard Price is that he's a talented surgeon from what we know. Um, he spends his days you know, performing these surgeries, but then he's also, you know, swindling, uh, doing a lot of sports betting, a lot of loan sharks type stuff. So this guy's the liar and a cheat, um, but he's in a fancy suit with an expensive watch as well. And that's Richard Price. And so when he's in this situation of the need for pure survival, his bravado and his arrogance is still, you know, at the top of his mind. He's just like, I'm going to get out of this. It's only a matter of time. I'm going to outsmart everybody. I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best. And it's amazing to get this this character and then put that character in this sort of um, diary entry structure where we as the reader are, are observing the decline. We're observing that your plan is unraveling before our eyes and you start to make choices when you realize that you are more human than you thought and you are very hungry. Um, so for the, the reason why it is not, of course, in the winner's circle is with these amputations being so, you know, uh, he has zero medical supplies other like I know he has a medical bag but I, I'm sorry guys with that much dehydration and delusion and all of the exposure to the body he would have bled to death this guy is not that good of a surgeon I think he would have bled to death um, so I'm just I shake my head I'm unable to suspend my disbelief when he starts to amputate certain parts of himself I was like there's there's just no way uh, you would have bled to death after the first amputation. So um, I just could not work past that one. So, um, but I, it was entertaining. I loved the character of Dr. Dr. Richard Price. And I love that King allows for an arrogant person to kind of get his just rewards. But at the same time, the complexity of that character is you're kind of cheering for him a little bit. It's not like he's an irredeemable villain and you just want him to suffer, suffer, suffer. So the narration is really successful in the fact that like, I do care about this jerk of a guy. I kind of want to see him make it out, but at the same time, I'm enjoying the horror ride. I'm enjoying that he's falling down this hole before my eyes. So, survivor type. I dug it. It's an honorable mention. Our last honorable mention is Grandma. This is the second, or maybe the third, third to last story of the 10. This one was uh, very just old school spooky, perfect for the Halloween season. Uh, but what's really cool is I love what King was doing with this lore of having this young boy sort of piece together this very adult lore that his grandma 
and her children know that she is not quite human and so I don't mean that in the alien sense but I don't really want to give it away so I'm just gonna say it's of the occult variety it is of the occult variety so this grandma has this history of not being able to give birth to her to living children all of her babies she you know carries them to term and they are born dead and it's kind of like spooky and creepy and sad but yet all of a sudden she does have children that survive and and he kind of weaves in this story of maybe something occult happening um grandma and her husband grandma and grandpa were kicked out of the church there's all these wonderful little tidbits that king places before the reader and then we get a very spooky ending we get a very cool ending i liked this i liked the lore that king was building about what if i mean i think a lot of us when we're in that under 10 years old age certain relatives frighten you and you don't really know why i used to have an uncle who was german and very tall and he had a very prominent beard and for whatever reason i'm five six years old i was terrified of him i just ran away every time he came near so it really channels that kind of childhood fear of family members and then our narrator little george his fear is definitely validated like oh he had every right to be freaked out because grandma is is terrifying grandma is uh quite monstrous and has a lot of power and uh maybe has some ancient occult roots that were very cool so i liked the the small details that are strung along this story it kind of seems very 80s and old school this little boy is just kind of freaked out by his grandma who's in the bed it's very um little red riding hood uh with the wolf as the grandma so we got some ancient fairy tales being channeled i think that's a hans christian anderson one um little red riding hood don't quote me on that it, no i think it's brothers grim brothers grim maybe question mark so um we'll we'll amend that later it's it's one of the one of the guys um definitely very little red riding hood vibes in there so I loved this. I, I was entertained, I was creeped out, but I liked the lore behind the scenes, the delicate little morsels that King is feeding the reader, and it's way above our young narrator's understanding. He doesn't understand it as deeply as we, the reader, does. So I really liked it. Let us recap, dear folks. I've just been blabbing away on this winner's circle. Uh, if you want to pick up your copy of Skeleton Crew or jump over to the audiobook, please listen to Nona. And right after that, listen to The Reach and tell me what you think do you love means. What what does it mean to you? What do you feel it means in at least Nona? Because that one's got me curious. Um, my third gold medal, I definitely put around the neck of Uncle Otto's truck. Very cool. Very, very cool. And then we've got three honorable mentions, The Reaper's Image, Survivor Type, and Grandma. 
that's all I got for this section, folks. Stick with me for the next section where we're going to talk about the loser's bench. We just have one or two in here that I just shake my head. I couldn't do it. Uh, not as There's not as vehement of disdain or I, I think I, I'm much more in a pleasant disposition, much more analytical. And the loser's bench, it isn't really a flaming garbage fire at all. I mean, with King, it never really is, right? I mean, on his, on his worst day, it's still gonna be better than anything anybody puts out. Um, but uh, let's take a look at some of the stories that I was just like, uh, no. Um, and then we're going to kind of wrap up and take a look at the collection as a whole, what I noticed, what I enjoyed, all that good stuff. I'll see you there. Hi everyone, thank you for joining me on the loser's bench for the second half of Skeleton Crew. I have two tales to break down with you. I wish they weren't in the loser's bench, and as I mentioned previously, loser is a bit of a harsh word. I don't think they're loser stories. However, they just miss the winner's circle a little bit, but we have two tales in the second half of Skeleton Crew that just kind of okay the first one is the ballad of the flexible bullet i think this might be the second to last tale uh as we make our way toward the end and we get to the fantastic story called the reach which closes out the collection Ballad of the Flexible Bullet is 44 pages long in the American hardcover, and I think it's about 20 pages too long, folks. So this one has a really intriguing premise. It is taking place after a barbecue where there's Henry the editor, who is the fifth wheel. There is the agent, his wife, and then the writer and his wife. So the barbecue is winding down, and then Henry is our narrator who begins to tell the story of Reg Thorpe, who wrote this story and how he went insane, and Henry, the editor himself, went insane by being a part of it, reading it, so a little odd. So what I did like about this story is King does some really cool lore that I really enjoyed. So I have mentioned during my Bizarre of Bad Dreams coverage, there is one story in Bizarre of Bad Dreams that I love so, so much. It inspired, it totally would be my dollar baby. If I could get a bunch of creative folks together and make a film, it would be over the short story Cookie Jar, which is found in the paperback edition of The Bizarre of Bad Dreams. I adore this thing. It is fantastical, magical, historical fiction. There's World War II. It's about mental illness. Oh my God, it's so rich. So I see a lot of the same kind of concepts found in The Ballad of the Flexible Bullet. We have a somewhat long-winded dissertation on madness. Basically, King is asking, or rather telling the reader that 
being insanity or madness is doesn't kill you straight on. It's a bullet that kind of uh, makes a mess in your brain for a while. Uh, jumping back to Cookie Jar. In Cookie Jar, King talks about this fantastical world of gobbets and Red John. And if you read it, you know it. But please read Cookie Jar. It is ugh, swoon, chef's kiss. Um, but here inside the Ballad of the Flexible Bullet, we have the concept of Reg Thorpe feeling that there are little tiny elves inside his keyboard and the elves are called fornets and they have this little uh i believe it's described in the story as like a little gun a little squirt gun if you will uh that squirts fornis which is magic dust and this magic dust sort of provides power and magic so that anybody who's using the keyboard can write a bestseller or can write amazing, creative, beautiful things. So of course, um, this is Reg's conclusion that he is only a good writer because he has a fornit, a little elf, inside the keyboard who he feeds and they have to consistently take the um uh the keyboard in to get cleaned because it's jammed full of food bits of cake and sandwiches and ham and all kinds of mess and he thinks the little elf is eating it but really it's just his poor wife trying to uh you know take care of her husband who is showing signs of extreme mental illness. So the fornit and the fornis, it sounds a little a little much at first, but it totally works. And it reminds me of Cookie Jar, which has those sort of fantastical elements associated with mental illness, and it's very rich, it's very good. So that I did like about the Ballad of the Flexible Bullet. I also like the concept and the premise that madness is kind of sly and slow going but then you know after a little while you're totally beautiful mind like you are really uh up to your neck in not observing reality um correctly at all and uh we really hear about reg thorpe's decline because he starts talking about the electricity and radiation and so here's where the story becomes problematic for me so if you jump back to my episode on the Tommy Knockers a few months ago, I not, I granted I had a lot of problems with Tommy Knockers, but the main character of Ray Gardner is very very similar to our narrator in this story, Henry the editor. So Ray Gardner, of course, extremely problematic. This is as as we've explored on the show was a 1987 release tommy knockers and ray gardner is really sort of um, embodying perhaps king at the height of this uh rock bottom descent in which there was a intervention from his family from alcohol and drug abuse so uh ray gardner is uh, a character that really represents a lot so ray gardner i did not like because he's a fall down drunk throughout the story and he's impulsive he is extremely crass, impolite, and he just won't stop talking about nuclear war in Russia. And then while he's doing that, he's completely 
uh, intoxicated and making a fool of himself. And he does this often. He's just drunk really throughout the entire novel, making him uh, an unreliable narrator, but also sort of a complex character if it was done correctly. He does have a redeeming arc at the end, which is great, but uh, Henry, our editor, is really a cookie cutter of Ray Gardner from the Tommyknockers. He is also a fall down drunk, and we just have numerous scenes of his descent into drunkenness, um, compounded by the fact that he's reading Reg's story, and then he starts to get the same sort of paranoid delusions as Reg. Um, and then there's a part that you know definitely makes me shake my head where he kind of feeds into reg's paranoia he goes along with it and says oh yeah i totally have a fornit in my typewriter as well um yeah i've had one for years they're great and and then of course reg who's already in a delicate mental state absolutely feels vindicated and it kind of spirals so um the drunkenness of Henry makes him kind of an unreliable narrator as well. And just the decisions that are made in this this relationship with Reg, I, I it's just, I could get on board with it, but here's what happened, folks. As I was making my way through the ballad of the flexible bullet, I was getting bored. And I that's the kiss of death. I wanted the story to end. I felt it was long-winded. We started to get bloated. We just had these extra drawn-out scenes of the drunken aftermath, um, which can be valuable. But this story is about Reg Thorpe's descent into madness and his sort of grappling with reality. Uh, but why did Henry have to kind of have an identical case of it? So the story kind of swiftly becomes about Henry and King doesn't give me enough to care about him. I, I really didn't. I just wanted to hear about Reg Thorpe. The story is about this author whose story was brilliant beyond brilliant, but he ended up going totally insane. Um, I... I just feel like the identical uh, mirroring of, well, he, you know, had all the electricity turned off in the house and he was wearing a tinfoil hat. And then I, I was, I was scared of my smoke detector. And then I wanted to turn the electricity off in my house. And it was just, I don't know. So I'm going to mull over this one a little bit, but bottom line, when I'm reading a King story and I'm wanting it to end or I'm getting a little bit tired of these the being there, that is the mark of something's up. Something is not working right. Uh, this, you know, it's like when you're when your car starts making funny noises, I feel that's what the the ballad of the flexible bullet does. Uh, it is a dissertation on madness and creativity, and for that premise, I kind of like that. I like that they kind of mention um, author success. Uh, for example, Sylvia Plath is quoted, and I, this is a cool quote where they said uh, she didn't kill herself because of success; she killed herself from, or rather, she um, committed suicide, and then she was successful. So success wasn't part of it. She was, but yeah, it's a good quote. I think I butchered it slightly, but, uh, the, the theme of madness and creativity, that's working well. I think if we could edit this a little bit, I would highly, uh, decrease 
and omit this sort of twin madness that Henry and Reg Thorpe have. I, I didn't find it that it was doing anything for the story, and it just suddenly it became all about Henry and all about, you know, he's drunk and he crashed his car into the water and he was found along the shores of the river, identical to what happened to Ray Gardner and Tommy Knockers. So it's like, all right, let's just, let's dial it down. Let's turn down the volume on you, Henry the editor, and let's get back to uh, Rudge Thorpe. This one needs some cleaning up a bit, guys. This one needs a little bit of editing and some extra time in the stew pot. Uh, yeah, 44 pages, way too long, way too long. So this one just, and like I said, this is not a story that I observed and said, I hate you. I hate you, story. You are trash. No, 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 no. This is one that has a lot of good, but the bad sort of weighs a lot more than the good. And I'm just unable to, I'm all, it's unable to be salvaged in, <laughs> in, uh, in my thoughts at this time. So Ballad of the Flexible Bullet is on the loser's bench for this second half of Skeleton Crew. And then our last one is kind of similar in, in tone and subject. The, the, there's only two today, but the last story that just didn't work for me in the second half is, of course, Big Wheels, parentheses, A Tale of the Laundry Game, Milkman number two. This is a head scratcher, guys, and I might have a problem. I mean, it might be yeah, we might have to, uh, it might be an actual problem. I might have a, have a little, little, some scruples when it comes to heavily drunk narrators. I, maybe I'm just intolerant to them. I don't know, but we have not one, but two extremely intoxicated narrators. And this is different because, you know, Henry, the editor in our last story was just talking about his drunkenness. These guys are actually drunk, drunk driving actually. So I'm not necessarily morally condemning them, although that is, you know, something to be condemned. Um, but I just can't, I, I found it completely uninteresting. And I, I was like, okay, we have got two drunk friends. They just finished their laundry shift, which I believe that was one of King's first jobs. He talks about that in uh, some of his nonfiction about like doing heavy hospital laundry. Yuck. Um, so they're they've clocked out clearly they've been you know starting their weekend they're both drunk and drunk driving and trying to find a place to fix their car get kind of a tune-up if i understood the text correctly um and it's just reading drunk people um which you're trying to decipher what's going on and nothing's unclear the only redeeming part about this story guys is uh, we just read about Spike Milligan in uh, the Milkman, Milkman number one. So we just read about this creepy guy and we got this short little burst of a tale of this creeper guy in the milk truck putting spiders in the milk bottles and poisoning and then he goes into this house and there's like blood and uh brain matter on the wall like this was a little creepy uh tale and so we know that there's this freak show milkman 
wandering about and so these guys are connected to him a little bit there's talk of one of the wives like something something the milkman and they're onto his game a little bit that was the best part of the story uh so i loved the interconnectedness to a previous story that was working well but that's the only thing i liked and that's not good because technically that doesn't have anything really to do with the narration so it was, uh, I, I don't know if I maybe am intolerant to drunk narrators, guys. I don't know. We'll, we'll come back to that. We'll circle back. But yeah, Rocky and Leo, bless them. Glad you're having fun. But I, I don't care. I don't care. Um, I, I, it was hard for me to care. I'm sure this was supposed to be fun. And it looks like it was published in a horror anthology. So in the context of like reading spooky stories, that would work but you have to read this adjacent to Milkman 1, of course. Um, but I feel it's definitely the weaker of the two. And if we were going to edit, uh, let's ramp up that Milkman stuff. More, more, more of that. We only get a line or two about Spike or seeing the Milkman's truck or his concern that his wife is maybe uh has been dallying with a uh, said milkman or something like that we need just way more milkman either spike needs to make an appearance uh i just needed more milkman for sure uh it's a spooky one it, it's successful in some of the the one-liner creepouts that i love that king does like just come out of nowhere and uh, I believe in this story, there's just a line where it says Bob went home and strangled his wife and burned the house down. And you're like, wow. So uh, per, per usual, there's always good. There's always uh, things to celebrate, even in the less successful short stories. Uh, and and there is some good in, in Big Wheels, for sure. There always is. Um, but more Milkman stuff. I was on board with this freaky serial killer milkman named Spike. I got to know him and his repertoire in Milkman 1. So ramp it up. Ramp it up. I don't care about these drunk people driving the car. Um, not as much as I care about Spike. So more Spike. More, more creepy milkman. And I think that would have balanced out the glaring awkwardness and disinterest of big wheels so that's all i got guys so the loser's bench is very small this time because as i mentioned this second half was wonderful oh my gosh skeleton crew part two uh the second half is very very rewarding very rewarding and that's i'm excited to proclaim that to all of you like hey 1985 skeleton crew has some gems so speaking of those gems let us now wrap things up let's do some final thoughts here and talk about skeleton crew as a whole as well as hand out some awards for my favorite stories in the collection i'll see you there
All right, buddies, we have reached the end of our now three-part coverage. If you include The Mist, we explored that novella first. It was the longest one of the collection, and what a wonderful old-school creature feature throwback with a very fun premise, super fun, although um, I, I kind of wish there was less Arrowhead Project more pure chaos or rather instead of arrowhead project it should have just been the shop wouldn't that have been cool i i, I want the shop to be more involved in uh, those government shenanigans uh really really enjoyed the mist uh even even the not so favorite parts that was a ton of fun and holy hell the movie was even more fun so if you want to start it all again jump back to our coverage on the mist skeleton crew part one i was a bit feisty do forgive me i'm much more calm now uh, and now concluding skeleton crew part two i'm so happy i read this collection guys this is a very rewarding collection it's polarizing in some areas but also looking at the time these stories were written and kind of understanding that we should really be reading these separately a little bit i think um, I think that reading them back to back was slightly problematic for some of the reasons I mentioned in Skeleton Crew Part 1. If you guys sort of digest the collection as a whole, you will come to find, and this is even found in the author's notes, King has a direct quote saying, I'm like a fat woman dieting, something like that. Uh, there is just back to back to back to back commentary on uh, women's weight and women being overweight. It's just a thing. So I think the back-to-back -back nature of it doesn't do the reader any favors if anyone is sensitive to that or just tired of it um it, it also doesn't for for somebody who wants to and this is the challenge we don't have to love our heroes you know they they're humans and they air and they make mistakes just like all of us um but it, there's always that that sad part where you're you you kind of idolize someone and you just think they're the cat's pajamas and then they kind of remind you that they are human and they are make they do make mistakes and i think king does that a little bit for me in this collection however this was years and years and years ago people change and uh people how go to rehab and aa and all those things um so we're not going to talk too much on that but just know that's a thing if you digest this collection back to back um you know it kind of sounds like king's a little bit of a bully in that regard or a little bit cruel in that way and so yeah just a heads up on that um second what i super loved about this collection and i wish we could observe this more in other collections was there's like hints of interconnectedness and i kind of mentioned that when we talked about nona and the reach we have that repeating question do you love we have that in both stories and i'm just like yes i love this i love that this story makes me think of the other and i'm looking for parallels and i'm looking for patterns and I love that. I love what it does to my brain. I also love that we had the Milkman part one, the Milkman part two, even though I didn't care for the second story as much. Like I, I love that there was kind of a bleed over into another iteration. I love that. I love it so much. And 
just like when constant readers get really, really, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, I get super excited when I have mention of other characters in, in new stories. For example, in Nona, we have mention of Ace Merrill. Um, we, we are in the familiar setting of Castle Rock. We hear about Vern Tessio. Like, the interconnectedness is great when it's the extended King world, but when it's actually found inside the collection is even better. Um, I think that even publishers love that. Interconnected short stories are so enjoyable because everything's building uh, sort of can everything is building upon each other and I think it just does wonderful things inside the imagination if you are taking this character story and then jumping over to this scene with it's wonderful um, and so the fact that they're independent short stories with these little echoes of each other so successful so so cool so the other thing i super duper loved is we have three stories two in particular that have incredibly gorgeous new england saturation we've got beautiful colloquial language expression like these this really sing-song it, it seems very old school. It seems lived in. It seems so cultural. This is such a cultural immersion. Two of these stories, one of them being Mrs. Todd Shortcut and the other being The Reach. Like these are just so immersive, guys. When you read these, you feel, at least I did, that like I'm spending time with a native, a native citizen of Maine, a very uh, old, wise citizen who has been so uh decorated by the land and by that life and that's beautiful that's such a fun uh thing to observe in the text it just shines so bright and it really speaks of king's talent to not only string together a wonderful character a wonderful plot but also the way he brings it to life this this word choice and this this I'm losing my words because this is what happens when I get excited. <laughs> this this patchwork, this patchwork of of beautiful cultural immersion, and that's what we have, and it's very strong. And even in in uh, Nona, which isn't as immersive, uh, we still have that Castle Rock beauty, that native Maine. A uh, young student disillusioned youth. We've got the king trope sort of coming out uh, in full force, and I love it, love it, love it. Um, so I think I am ready to announce to everybody my favorites of Skeleton Crew. So I've decided that we are going to have a tie for first place. Um, I just couldn't, I could not hit one above the other. I feel like both were gold medal winners and need to be gold medal recipients. So my tie for first place is, of course, the glorious Mrs. Todd shortcut. Oh, wow. I, I cannot praise that one enough, guys. Just wow. 
just it'll keep you thinking it'll just be in your brain for days it is magical um and then right next to mrs todd shortcut right on the same podium is the reach that is so beautiful and oh my god i love it so much that is rich and decadent and lived in and precious and i got a little misty-eyed at the end and the second it was over i went right back to to read it from start to finish because it was such a beautiful tale it was such a beautiful use of language and just immersion i was completely immersed into the rife the the life <laughs> the, the life of stella flanders the oldest resident on goat island beautiful guys and double plus double gold it reminds me of storm of the century which is a wonderful wonderful uh, perhaps the best of all time um mini series that came out in 1999 um that one takes place on little tall island but uh i adore that one so so much tied for first mrs todd shortcut and the reach uh receiving our silver medal here today is of course nona i loved the hell out of that one guys so strong even though it was violent and somewhat frightening we just have so much gothic beauty and melancholy and uh, wonderful character development wonderful narration uh just a, a very cool but yet delicate description of a descent into depravity and i was there for it i loved it i was like yeah cold-blooded murder i'm okay i signed me up i'm with it because the way he's describing it to me is so lovely and unexpected and i was very impressed by nona for the bronze, we are headed back to the Manhattan Brownstone of, uh, I always forget the address, um, but we're going to the man who would not shake hands. We're awarding the bronze to that tale. So, so good. Uh, once more, if you haven't yet read The Breathing Method, this is another example of that interconnectedness that I love, love, love. If you read The Breathing Method inside 1982's Different Seasons, go ahead and read that one. That one's a little bit of a doozy, subject matter-wise. However, it depends on your desensitization. Some people are going to be really shocked by it. Other people are going to be right as rain. So go ahead and read The Breathing Method, then jump right over here to Skeleton Crew and uh, digest the man who would not shake hands so rewarding so worth it and that's another beautiful one where king uses uh more antiquated word choice and language and colloquialisms he's writing about 1919 and it totally fits it just works so well i don't know how he does it it just mystifies me it blows me away every single time how he just captures a time period captures a region i just oh swoon um so the man who shook would not shake hands gets the bronze and then we have a couple honorable mentions as i mentioned um in this episode as well as i don't know if i had honorable mentions in skeleton crew part one i might not have um but honorable mentions the reaper's image that was short and mighty really cool very gothic i enjoyed that quite a bit i also really liked the monkey which was in part one that one was like 
the movie Jumanji, but just ramped up to uh, to level 10. That one was spooky, but I liked the father-son and then the father sort of reminiscing, well, really not reminiscing, more like flashing back to childhood terror and childhood trauma associated with this very haunted object. I liked it. It was working very well. It did freak me out. That one spooked me quite a bit. I think I might have a, a little psychological vulnerable spot when it comes to reoccurring objects in horror. Um, I kind of talk about this in my Doom McKee episode about dolls. Dolls are hugely gothic and uh, dolls or toys, which we have with the monkey, any anytime that is like associated with like demonic possession or it belonged to like this malevolent ghost, I was like, um, I like it, but it does freak me out more than I realized. So I really enjoyed the monkey um, and I also liked grandma. Uh, so that one was very fun as we talked about in our uh, winner's circle. That was another honorable mention. Grammar was uh, old school and I liked the end quite a bit. That was a spooky ending, but I liked the fact that Grandma has occult roots and her children know about the occult roots. And that's what's kind of fascinating about Grandma is they are quite aware what their mother is. They know what she is and who she is and how to sort of handle her. But sweet little baby George Bruckner did not uh, until it was too late. So check out Grandma. Old school, but a very cool premise of some some nice lore going on with that spooky 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 um lots of spooky and skeleton crew guys this was definitely um one of the more frightening at least old school horror uh, that I've observed in in my King journey thus far. Looking back to Everything's Eventual uh, has a lot of, I think, kind of cerebral stuff going on in that one. We also have a lot of fantasy history, which I love. Um, and then with Just After Sunset, we have a lot more blood and guts. Um, I'm thinking about the gingerbread girl. That is a straight up thriller from start to finish. And we have, uh, we have a lot more body horror, body extremity in Just After Sunset, but this is more just old school Twilight Zone spooky time. Uh, but yeah, some of the ones that I just could not work with, um, as we have mentioned, uh, Beach World, I, I, uh, super problem with that guys i just couldn't even that one just eluded me in all the ways um as we mentioned uh the ballad of the flexible bullet i like i wanted to love the jaunt wanted to love it um but it, it just didn't work it's not aging well i just felt the ending although although cool it just, there's no way in in a future this person wouldn't have been hooked up to Vital Sign Monitor. Like, uh, yeah, so stuff like that. The jaunt, couldn't suspend my disbelief on that one. The raft, I don't really like my horror with a lot of misogyny. That one had quite a bit, so I'm not a fan of the raft. However, the water monster or the black blob 
alien thing. Very cool. I gave it points for that. Um, so jump back to Skeleton Crew Part 1 to have a greater uh, insight into the ones that I celebrate and the ones that just didn't make miss that missed the mark quite a bit but i'm so glad i read this collection guys this is very interesting i love the interconnectedness but we have some diamonds in here guys we have some absolute diamonds in this collection that fill me with joy that remind me why i adore king so much that remind me why i i podcast that remind me why uh he is the best and my favorite author of all time and that is always rewarding when you get to digest some reading material that fills you with the, that kind of emotion and that kind of inspiration and Mrs. Todd's shortcut, um, the reach, Nona, the man who would not shake hands, that, that did that for me. So that's rewarding. That's, that's worth the price of admission. That is worth the slog through the sort of king as not nice guy. Um, just because of the coincidental uh, juxtaposition of these tales. I think he's most likely fine. It's just in this collection, it seemed to put a spotlight on him kind of having a lot of intolerance toward anybody who's a woman um, and not uh, the ideal size in his mind. That's all I will say there. We're done. We're done. I promise I'm done. I'm done talking about it. Uh, I'm done being upset about it. Um, we're done. So that's all I got, folks. Uh, once more, thank you all for listening to the show and uh, digesting this three-part skeleton crew coverage. What is coming up next? I believe we're gonna we're gonna do any mini mini mo here. I'm thinking about either Dreamcatcher or From Buick Eight. So I believe those are both alien-associated king tales. So we're gonna go for it and. It might be one of those two. I do believe I will rejoin Roland and the Cotet, perhaps late March, if not first of April. Um, but you know me, there might be some some wild surprises in between all of those. I do hope to also have a constant reader interview. We are hoping to get Matt Hurt's counterpart, Tiny, from Tower Junkies. I've asked Tiny to be my buddy on here, and he said yes, we just got to work out a time. So hopefully that'll be coming up soon. Uh, once more, if you have haven't yet visited Apple Podcasts to give the show a five star, that would be so kind. And if you would say something nice about the show, that would also just make my day. We appreciate that so much so we can connect with other King readers. And if you haven't said hi yet, please head over to underratedsk at gmail. Feel free to mention any of the stories you've observed on here if you want to talk about other subjects or areas of the story or collection that I missed, I am more than willing and open to do that. I love talking about these books. So please say hi and give your recommendations for what we should read next on the show. Um, yeah, we are open and excited to hear from you guys. So wherever you are in the world, please, please, please take care. Uh, be safe, stay warm if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, and for for those Aussies and everybody in the South, uh, enjoy the beach as best you can, and we will talk to you soon. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.